All right, thank you, Lindsay. Um, like I said before, if you're if you took the class uh, this morning, then there's going to be a little bit of overlap, but I tried to keep them pretty pretty good and separate. But when we do the lectionary, one of the interesting things about it, and sometimes one of the frustrating things about it, is that it sort of just drops you in in the middle of something and then kind of takes you out of it uh, without giving you a lot of context. The good thing about that is that it challenges you to read ahead and read behind. And so it's important in this passage especially that we kind of understand what's come before it. So we're building directly from uh, where we were last week, where Peter and John have just performed this miracle of healing a man who was born unable to walk. And this guy raises a scene. They're in the temple. He starts praising John and Peter, and they end up having to answer for it. And Peter gives a speech. And that kind of ends chapter three. And in chapter four, the first four verses give us some key context about what Peter's about to say in today's passage. But they're brought before the Sadducees. And so that's key detail number one. Key detail number two is that many of those who heard the word believed, numbering about 5,000 men. Uh, and that doesn't, doesn't say anything about women or children, but thousands of people are starting to believe in this. And it was the Sadducees who brought uh, Peter and John in. Now, a little bit of background about first century Judaism. There were three main philosophies in the priestly class. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. For the sake of this discussion, we don't even need to talk about the Essenes, so just forget about them. But basically, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had sort of a, a conflict of philosophy and of interest. The Pharisees had a little bit more of a fluid belief in the law and scripture. And so they uh, part of what developed out of the Pharisaical traditions, uh, they were a little closer to the people. And they were the ones who began developing this idea of a soul and a spiritual life and the afterlife and the resurrection. And they relied a lot more on oral tradition, not strictly uh, the letter of the law in the Torah. The, uh, the Sadducees, on the other hand, were kind of grumpy text literalists. And if it wasn't in the scripture, they didn't believe in it. And so for this reason, they outright rejected uh, the concept of spiritual life, the concept of afterlife, and certainly the concept of resurrection. Um, those were topics that arose later in Jewish history. They weren't in the Torah, so Sadducees just rejected them. And this rejection was central. Uh, and if you remember uh, from Sunday school, uh, there's a story where some people asked Jesus, if a woman gets married and her husband dies and then she marries his brother and then he dies and she marries another brother, and it goes on seven different iterations of that, when she dies and gets to heaven, who was she married to? And the trick there is that it's the Sadducees asking this question. And so they're asking a question based on a belief that they didn't even have to begin with. So they're kind of jerks on top of everything else. Um, but now they're also threatened. The proclamation of Peter and John that Jesus was raised from the dead and it was by Jesus's name that they've healed this man uh, and that it's the only name that anybody can be saved through, it's a threat to them on two levels. One, it's a threat because it's telling them that their entire framework of belief is wrong. And number two, the authority that they had based on that framework is becoming irrelevant. 
In other words, it's not just a threat to their current status, but a threat to their future influence. Because as already uh, word spreads, thousands of people are coming to believe in Jesus and the resurrection. So this was a controversial moment in the kind of a pivotal moment in the life of Judaism. So again, Peter gives this speech that Lindsay read for us, in which he makes this oblique reference to Psalm 118 when he talks about the cornerstone. And we're going to come back to that for a moment, uh, in a moment rather. But for now, just understand that when Peter does this and he makes a reference to an Old Testament text like this, it's a way of connecting Jesus to the history and the heritage of Israel and to God's people. And it was something that the Pharisees seemed incapable of doing. Uh, and it was the one thing that would have oriented their beliefs properly so that they didn't lose this influence and they, they wouldn't have uh, been blind to what was going on. But Peter ends it by saying, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among humans by which we must be saved. Now, a lot has been made about this passage and this particular verse and the idea that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Uh, there is a, in, in staff meeting the other day, we were talking about old youth group songs and there's this song called One Name. I think it was, I think it was a Hillsong song or something, but um, just amazingly cheeseball and also the same chord progression as Can't You See by Marshall Tucker. Uh, but Anyway, one that this, this idea of this one name being, being the thing that saves us, a lot has been built around that. Um, and at the most fundamental level, yes, it is saying that Jesus is the way to salvation. But at kind of a subterranean level, it's also saying that there's no other help coming. And that salvation is not coming to you or to anybody from anyone or from anything else other than Jesus. The priests of the first century tried to make ways of salvation that were, in fact, hindrances to it. And that's why the law got so convoluted and complicated. Today, we sort of see it in the repeated mantra of living your best life. And, you know, if you, if you just do this new thing, if you get this, uh, this new job, uh, if you join this new gym, if you start this new diet, if you job, um, if you have this... Uh, new group of friends, these new opportunities, everything is going to be great. All you got to do is this. All you got to do is that A, B, C, D. You just got to follow these steps and you'll be able to live the best life that you possibly can. You see it in the promises of politicians, few of whom ever do anything to make anything better. Um, you see it in the false promises of celebrities and people of influence uh, who try to tell us what we can do to, to be better and to, to, again, live our best lives. And I think it, a lot of times they do so even without, a, with, without any self-awareness. Um, you see it in the profiles you follow, in the ads that you click, in the things that you buy. There are so many things that we run to, good and bad, to get a sense of fulfillment, to build our identity, to feel secure and safe in who we are. And the fact that people continually bounce from one thing to another in that pursuit, to me, is evidence of how effectual those things actually are. If they were helpful uh, in and of themselves, we wouldn't have to bounce between so many of them. We wouldn't be on this constant pursuit. 
And the energy and the effort that we put into chasing them often feels like a waste when things don't go our way. Or it feels like we've misplaced our faith when things don't live up to our expectations. And maybe sometimes we have. But none of these things that we chase are a picture of heaven come down to earth. None of them are a picture of God becoming human, of the word becoming flesh as Jesus did and dwelling among us and living among us and dying for us and resurrecting for us. None of these things have ever given anything for us, although they constantly ask us to give so much for them. And so as I read this passage, I wonder why would we chase after any of those things when we do have the resurrection of Christ? It's the very presence of God demonstrating his desire to die for us, to save us, and to raise again to bring us to new life. Why would we seek meaning from anything else? Now look, I'm not saying that all you need is Jesus, and I'm not saying that it's bad when we strive to succeed or when we look for joy and uh companionship and relationships. I'm not saying that it's it's not good that we have ambitions and uh, and goals that we want to reach. And it's not bad that we want to spend time doing things to take care of ourselves. That, those are all very good things. And there are obviously things in creation that were meant to take place and uh, that were meant to partake in that the presence of God simply can't do for us. Uh, the perfect example of that, I mean, you take from the very beginning, God creates Adam and he says, it's not good that this is this man is alone. He needs companionship. So there's obviously there are things in creation that fulfill us in ways that God's presence alone can't do. Okay. This passage isn't saying that Jesus is all that you need. But this is where the image of a cornerstone becomes important. Now, for those of you who don't know, the cornerstone is the first stone laid in the construction of a building. It creates sort of an imaginary line whereby all the other stones and bricks and timbers and everything else are set vertically and horizontally, uh, left to right, up and down. Um, it's absolutely imperative that the cornerstone be set in the exact right place and in the exact right position so that the house faces the direction it's meant to face and so that the walls don't cave in. Without the cornerstone oriented correctly, you won't, have, uh, you won't have a straight line or a parallel line or a right angle anywhere in the house. And it won't be facing where it needs to face. But the cornerstone is not the only stone in the building. There are other bricks. You don't place the cornerstone and then brush your hands off and say, there, we can move our things in. No, you have to build the house. You have to put in timbers. You have to build the uh, finish pouring the foundation. You've got to put up the walls. Uh, I mean, you need windows and a roof and a chimney and you need paint and you need trim and light fixtures and running water and electricity and you need to move into it. So it's not that the cornerstone is the only thing that the building needs, but it's important not because it's the only stone in the house, but because it sets the orientation of everything that comes after it. Jesus is the cornerstone. Not because Jesus is all that we need, but because everything that we do need should be built around Jesus. Peter's words to the Sadducees here are a challenge to reevaluate not just what they believe about Jesus, but how they orient their lives around that belief. 
and the longer they reject Jesus as the cornerstone, the more and more of their true purpose they miss out on. And for us, at least for me, it's a reminder that where Jesus goes in the construction of our lives will help determine the orientation of the lives that we build. Timothy Keller sums it up like this. He says, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. In other words, you don't get salvation by pursuing it with everything that you have or by trying to find it in other things, but by pursuing Christ, the one who actually has the power to save you. Jesus isn't all that we need. We do need relationships. We need to have fun with our lives. We need to take care of ourselves. We need to feel connected to our community and our uh, family and our friends. We need good food and good exercise and fresh air and leisure time. We need a sense of purpose that comes from working hard and accomplishing our goals. We need those things. We need to enjoy life and take care of ourselves and look after one another. These are all very, very good things that we should pursue and that we should want, and that God wants us to pursue, and God wants us to want. But if we seek our security and our salvation in any of those things, or lay any of those things as the cornerstone in the lives that we try to build, then we'll find that we're building a house that isn't facing the right direction, and that even if it was, probably wouldn't stand up for very long. But if we put Jesus where he should be, then when we experience all those good and wonderful things, we'll be experiencing the way God intended us to have them all along. And they'll be fuller and richer and more full of meaning. And when we run into challenges where things don't quite go our way and some things do fail us, it won't cause our entire houses and our entire lives to come crumbling down. Jesus is the cornerstone because he is the thing that sets everything else that we orient our lives around. We're going to go into breakout rooms now, and I'm going to close this out in prayer before we do. So let's pray with me, and we'll get into our rooms. God, thank you for this morning, for each person here, and for the technology that allows us to come together the way that we can. Uh, Thank you for this morning and uh, for your word and for what it means to us. Help us to take this passage and to take what we know and believe about the resurrection and continually use it to set the orientation and the construction of the lives that we build. Uh, Empower us, encourage us through our conversations in the next few moments, and guide us into this week safely that we might serve you well. In your name, amen.